In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I shall ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, that spirit of truth whom the world can never receive, since it neither sees nor know him. But you know him, because he is with you, he is in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come back to you. In a short time the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you live. On that day you will understand that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Anybody who receives my commandments and keeps them will be one who loves me. And anybody who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I shall love him and show myself to him. So we're in the 14th chapter of St. John, in the upper room. So the second half of the Gospel of St. John. The Gospel of St. John is really divided in two main sections. The, there's the prologue, which introduces who Jesus really is to us, the Word of God. But then we have the ministry of John the Baptist and then the public life of Jesus with seven miracles and, and the great discourses of Jesus. And then we have from chapter 13 onward the washing of the feet and the discourse of Jesus to his apostles in the upper room at the Last Supper, the last celebration of the Passover before Jesus is handed to death in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we're on the eve of the Passion during the Last Supper. Judas has just left the room. So Jesus now talks to the eleven. And we saw the beginning of this chapter 14 last week. And now we continue on. And last week we had Jesus saying to his disciples, I am the way, the truth and the life. To see me is to see the Father. So we already had a, a whole introduction to that. But now Jesus is introducing the Holy Spirit. So that's what's happening tonight. So he really prepares his apostles, he prepares his church until he comes. And, and we know that from what he says, we can understand this coming of Jesus in two ways. I will not leave you orphans, I will come back to you. How can we understand it? We can understand it because Jesus will be taken in the garden and will go. Literally, in the next few hours, he will be taken from them and he will die. So now he's telling them, well, I will come back to you, I will rise again. In a, in a sense, we can understand that this coming back of Jesus as Sunday morning, the resurrection, he comes into the room and greets them. We have that in John 20, peace be with you. He shows his wounds to his apostles. 
So yeah, I will come back. But then we can also understand it, of course, as the coming of Jesus in glory at the end of time, which all the church is waiting for. I will not leave you orphans, I will come back to you. So we can understand that of ourselves. These words could be spoken, if you want, before he ascends to the Father, which is exactly what we're celebrating in the liturgy. He's already risen, but he's not yet ascended. So I will come back to you. We, we wait expectantly for his coming. So that's, if you want, the, the tension that we're left in, both this, this already and not yet of Jesus being there, telling us about his going away, his actually going away into death, coming back into life, and then still is not with us as fully as we want him to be, because we enjoy his presence by faith, but we wait for the day when we will see him face to face. In this gospel, I'm going to go straight into that incredible revelation that Jesus gives us of, of, of the life of God. Here in the text of St. John, we have the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit revealed in, in the most explicit way, as it were. And, and it's not just in this little passage that we'll have on Sunday, but throughout chapters 14, 15 and, and 16 and 17, especially the prayer, the priestly prayer of Jesus, we have this whole Trinitarian exposition. Jesus very explicitly tells us about the Father and the Holy Spirit and indicates to us that he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And, and we discover that. We, it's like this constant sort of repetition of the same theme until we, we finally get it. And Jesus is very patient with us. So this explicit revelation of the Trinity, which sort of makes up in the Gospel of St. John for the lack of narrative about his baptism and his transfiguration, which happened in all the other three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, and these are the two events in the life of Jesus where the Trinity is most explicitly revealed. When the Father speaks, we hear the voice of the Father this saying, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And we see the presence of the Holy Spirit at baptism in the dove and at the transfiguration in the cloud which surrounds Jesus. So that's the synoptic gospel's way of proclaiming the reality of the Trinity as the ultimate identity of Jesus. He's one of the Trinity, he's the Son of the Father. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here in St. John, we have it in the very words of Jesus. Jesus is one who reveals God to us. We can only know God because God himself has assumed our own flesh and blood in order to speak to us in human words about his identity. And this is as close as we're going to get in this life to know God by hearing Jesus, by seeing him, by being with him, by listening to him. This is it. So these words are very precious to us because they reveal to us the mystery of the life of God. And so we have the revelation of the Father, the Son and Holy Spirit. And this identity is open to us so that we can enter in. Because Jesus doesn't reveal the mystery of God to us, the mystery of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as a piece of extra information which is nice to know, but not 
primarily helpful to us in our life as creatures, as human. It's not some sort of extra bonus that we can know or not know about and that doesn't make much difference to us. It's not a piece of hidden knowledge which only the elect are invited to know. It's a knowledge which is for every, everyone. And it's life-giving to everyone because precisely in revealing who he is, he reveals the purpose of our life. Our life and our identity find their ultimate revelation in the revelation of the Trinity. We are made for God and the very life of the Trinity is open to us through the humanity of Jesus so that we can share in God's own life, so that we can be with God, so that we can sharing his life eternally, be with him forever. He is the eternal good for which we are made. And this is also revealed. So when God reveals himself to us, it's not just as a piece of information, but it's to save us. This revelation is saving us. It's saving us from losing ourselves, our identity, our purpose, from wandering around, not knowing who we are, what we're made for and what life is about. God himself comes to us and opens his own life to us so that we can share in it. And when does he does that? Jesus doesn't do this explicit revelation. He doesn't do this long discourse at any random point in his life. He does it just before he gives his life because the way in which we share in the life of the Trinity is through the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only way. That's the way that we are reconciled with God. That's the way that we are given the life of the Son so that we can come close to the Father through him in the Holy Spirit. So that's why the, this eve of the Passion is a very significant moment for the ultimate revelation of our, of our life, of our purpose in the heart of the Holy Trinity. Now, what I have done, I've taken the text and I've colored it in. So you can see different colors. The yellow is us. So you see how much we matter. And now, if, of course, when, uh, when this was spoken by Jesus, it would have been to the apostles. So you is the apostles. But of course, we know from the text that it's open to, to everyone, provided they receive the commandments of Jesus and keep them. Because the you then become anybody who receives my commandments and keep them will be one who loves me. And anybody who loves me will be loved by my father and I shall love him and show myself to him. So it's not exclusive to the apostles. It's inclusive of everyone. But the exclusivity comes into, well, the people, there has to be a receptivity on our part. And we see that at the heart of this revelation of the Trinity, where we are heavily involved. Again, this is not a piece of outside information. The revelation comes as we respond to Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. I shall ask the Father, he will give you. So you can see how many times we are mentioned as you, but we can see that in the red is, the red is Jesus. Me, my, I. And this comes all the time as well. So there's the I of Jesus and there's the you of the apostles, us. But then there's the Father and then there's the Holy Spirit. And so we see already just from this 
explosion of colors in the text that fundamentally we're talking about a relationship, we're talking about a communion. That God fundamentally reveals himself primarily not to tell us what to do, but so that we can be with him as he is with us. As he opens himself to us, we are invited him. We are invited into a relationship which he already is. And the word that we use uh, in the church is communion, to be one with. And throughout, Jesus constantly seems to be repeating that he is one with the Father. And this unity of Father and Son, we know he's formed this love between us is the Holy Spirit, and that unity is now open to us. And it's it's open to us at the moment of the greatest possible disintegration, where that separation, the, the moment of separation is the moment where the unity, the communion is revealed. It's the moment of the institution of the Last Supper, Holy Communion, where Jesus offers himself to be completely one with us so that we can receive him and be one with him. That moment of communion and institution of the Eucharist is also the moment of betrayal of Judah, of the denial of Peter that will happen in a few hours, but which he's already prophesied by Jesus. The moment of disintegration, of separation. And then Jesus goes away, separates from the group in the garden, takes the three with him, Peter, John and James, and separates even from them. And then he will be taken away from the apostles. And then he will be completely ostracized, rejected by his own people. And he will experience every type of division in his own body, uh, his body will be broken, it will be lacerated, it will be, everything will be divided as it was physically and emotionally, that he will suffer this incredible anguish. And finally, the moment of death, which is the separation of body and soul, will even happen to him. So this complete sort of disintegration through evil, the evil that is done to him, the evil that he chooses to undergo that we inflict on him, that he freely chooses to undergo out of love for us. And at this very moment, this is the moment where he offers us his communion. And the unity, the, the communion of Father, Son and Holy Spirit is open to humanity at the moment when we reject God. So unity and division. And we see that the unity is in fact way stronger than the division. So we have this offer to enter into this relationship with God in order to step into relationship with God. Of course, like any relationship, we have to be able to say you to God, to talk to him, to enter into a dialogue with him. There's no way that we can be at the same level with God. We are creatures. He's our creator. We are sinners is holy. In every possible way, there is no reciprocity possible between us and God. And yet what Jesus does through his Last Supper, and this is precisely through the gift of his own life, he offers us the chance to be raised up to the level of God by having come down to our level. And so we can say, 
Father to God and so that we can have the Spirit in us and so that we can be in the Son as He is in the Father. All that is the action of Jesus who opens this very life of God to us. The Holy Spirit is the bond. As we can see in the text, we begin with the red with Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. Then we have the Father. I shall ask the Father and he will give you. Now the Father is the origin of Son and Holy Spirit. He's the first one. Not in time, of course. Uh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit is eternal. There is never a, a moment, if you want, there's no time in God, but there was never... There is no precedence of being in the Father. They are equal and and they are one God, one being. But the Son is begotten from the Father. The Father begets the Son, so there's an origin. And the Father and the Son, their love is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we, we see that, first of all, we have Jesus because he's our entryway into the Trinity. And then he reveals the Father to us. But then it's the Father who gives the Advocate the Holy Spirit. And then in the text, we have the, the, the Advocate, the Spirit of Truth. Now, this is interesting because Jesus has just revealed himself to be the way, the truth and the life in the first few verses before in chapter 14. So the Spirit of Truth is really the Spirit of the Son. And the Spirit of Truth is already there because... Without him, we wouldn't know the Son. So there's this whole movement where they are really inseparable. We never know who comes first. Because if the Father hadn't sent the Spirit, we wouldn't know Jesus. If we hadn't the Spirit, we wouldn't know Jesus and we wouldn't know the Father. So there's a whole, there's a whole movement. And we can see that in the very words of Jesus. And then we come back to Jesus. I will not leave you orphans. I will come back. You will see me, I live in you. And then finally we come to the Father. You will understand that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So this whole merging of everybody in that unity, but they never cease to be themselves either. They never cease to be themselves insofar as they don't disappear in each other. It's very clear from the words of Jesus that there is a Father, a Son and the Holy Spirit, even though they're all one. They don't disappear in a big cloud as they don't become each other. They are distinct. And in the same way, we are distinct. It's always about you, 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 you. Jesus doesn't want us to disappear in God. He wants us to be as we are in him, to be distinctively ourselves, but to be distinctively united. And that unity is as strong as that distinction. That is the, the Trinity. Right, so that's revelation of the Blessed Trinity is essential. And these texts help us to, they might seem confusing because it seems Jesus is repeating the same thing over and over again at some point. But precisely this whole impression is, is one of unity and distinction that we need to keep very clearly in mind. And somewhere along the line, he's introducing us in all that reality of God. So that's the movement of the Trinity, if you want. The embrace of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, what 
is required of us in order to enter into the embrace. It's not automatic. It's not something that happens to us without knowing it and without wanting it. Yes, it doesn't happen without us knowing it or wanting it. And how is this knowing and wanting manifesting itself? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's where we find we understand ourselves. Now, to keep the commandments, there's a very strong sort of Old Testament feel to keeping commandments, isn't there? All through the Old Testament, Israel comes across all sorts of problems because it has failed to keep the word of God. It has failed to keep the commandments. It has forgotten the Lord. And here again, a, a, a first temptations we can have is to think of Christianity in terms of morals, of having things to do, which is a very common way that people look at Christianity from outside. The do-gooders, the people who live by a rule, the people who, you know, take the moral life seriously and try to abide by every rule and regulations. And in some very superficial way, we can understand why they would think that. But what is interesting and what we need to remember is that throughout the Old Testament, never are the commandments given to Israel apart from the explicit proclamation of that covenantal relationship with God. First of all, every time God gives his commandment, and I've taken Exodus 19, where we have literally the Ten Commandments, we begin with a relationship, the relationship of God with Moses, who calls Moses and reminds Moses of everything he's ever done for Israel. To set the gift of the commandment within a relationship that already exists and primarily within the gift of God, within, within what he has done. So that there is a context for the commandments. It's not, the commandments are never the, the, the job of someone who lives alone, has no God, and, and just wants to be a good citizen. There's nothing individual about keeping the commandment. It's always done in, within the primary relationship with God. And it's always done, of course, within the relationship to each other, because the commandments are about the way we relate to each other as well. But the, of themselves, without this covenantal relationship, without the knowing and the loving of God, first of all, that we have received his loving and knowing, he knows and loves us. And even sometimes we know ourselves and we don't quite love ourselves, but he knows and loves us. And we are called to know and love him. And the commandments are the manifestation of that. They can never be anything else. So they're not arbitrary laws. They don't fall from the sky. They don't, they're not just rules and regulations that are there to curtail us. They are the expressions of our love for God and for others. And this expression has to have an objectivity because it has to correspond to who God is and who my neighbor is. That's why sometimes they are very difficult. And they correspond also to who I am, how I am treating myself. So you see, Exodus 19, the Lord reminds Israel of everything. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, 
and tell the people of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and I, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This is what Jesus is saying. You in me and I in you, I brought you to myself. Now therefore you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my own possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so then he goes on to give them the Ten Commandments, which are there. And of course, the Ten Commandments begin with a proclamation of his identity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Well, this is exactly what we have tonight in John 14. The commandment begins with the revelation of God's identity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And... They come after the washing of the feet. They come after Jesus reveals not only his identity, but reveals his love, reveals what he does, what he's about to do. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. They come within that context of, of election, of the choice of God for us. That's where they come in. I am the Lord your, Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. In the same way, in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, and I, I really encourage you to read these two chapters, this is really God speaking to Israel, revealing his heart to them. And what is the heart of this commandment, the statutes and the ordinances? which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going to, over to possess. What is that commandment? It is rooted in remembering who the Lord is and what he has done. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It begins with revealing his identity. And you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So really what we have here in, in John 14 is not new at all because Jesus reveals the identity of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and his purpose in bringing us into his life eternally. And he, what is that commandment he gives um, if you, will, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are those commandments? Well, he has just given this commandment in, in John 13. After the washing of the feet, Jesus gives the new commandment. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So that's the commandment. If you love me, keep my commandment. So first of all, this parallel with the Old Testament, we could think, well, nothing has changed. It's Deuteronomy 6. It's the same thing. Revelation of God. And here, Israel, you shall love the Lord your God. If you love me, keep my commandment. Same thing. What's different? Because Israel failed, really. We can really read the, the entire Old Testament as Israel's tribulations in obeying that commandment and not quite succeeding in it and then when Jesus arrives and the Pharisees think they've got it all together he reveals to them how far they are from having kept the commandments. So 
What's the difference between Deuteronomy 6 and John 14? It's the difference of grace. That really now, because we are introduced into the Holy Trinity, we are introduced into the Holy Trinity, again, not as an external piece of information, but as an internal reality. It's all about God being in us. I shall ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to be with you, the Spirit of Truth. You know him because he's with you, he's in you. And then you will see me because I live and you live. Uh, you will understand that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And so God is in us. This is what Jesus achieves in the hour of his passion. That he gives us the means to finally obey that commandment of his which is really impossible because love one another as I have loved you, we remember how Jesus has loved us to the end. And we can remember how, you know, short and measured our love is. And we're very far usually in our love from reaching the end. And yet this is what he's asking of us. Why is he asking of us something which looks impossible? And in fact, he's asking this of people who in a couple of hours will be running away from him in fear, will leave him all alone, will be incapable not just of loving him but of even remembering what he said, will be denying him, would we'd rather be running away than, than staying with him and, and, and offering him their friendship in the hour of his need, will we'll think of their needs above his own who will be falling asleep when he's in, in agony. So these are the people that Jesus is giving this new commandment to. We can think, think that he has a lot of hope, can't we? This promise of grace, I will be with you, he will be with me. Now, what I have done in looking at who God is, is to look at the persons in the text. The subjects, the eyes and the use, the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus and the Apostles. Now, to, in order to understand a bit more about grace, we're going to look at the verbs. Because the verbs is the manifestation of what God does and what we do. Now, I've put three colours. What God does is in green, what we do is in red and blue. And you can see that what God does completely outweighs what we're supposed to be doing here. What we're supposed to be doing is to love, keep the commandments, and then to know, to see, to understand, and to receive the commandments, to keep them, and to love. What God does is that he gives, essentially, and he is with us, is constantly with us. He lives and he loves but you can see there is these two movements of what God does and what we're asked to do. And what God does, of course, takes precedence, is always first. God has the initiative. That's how we can understand grace. Because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's already a response to a love that's already been given. And it's because God acts in us that we're able to act in response. Now, what type of action are we called to do? 
uh, and the two colors correspond to two capacities that we have that are human capacities that mark us out from the rest of visible creation but that are also divine capacities insofar as this is in us what is really in the image and likeness of God a capacity for love for choosing a good and and our capacity for truth so the love is in red the truth uh, what's related to truth is in blue and we can see that we're called to both and we can only know and love through that grace of the spirit of truth who is also the spirit of love which is given to us as the fruit as the the, the outpouring of grace which is won by the redemption of, of Jesus. And that's why he has to go for the Holy Spirit to come. He has reconciled us with the Father. He has opened the life of the Holy Trinity to us and has made us temples now of the Holy Spirit. We, we can receive God in us as he has promised. Truth and love, this is how our response is manifested in keeping the commandments. What do we do when we keep the commandments? We heard them, we know them. There is a way, there is a requirement to, to doing, so, to, to obeying a commandment is to having heard them. So there's a first fundamental relationship of knowledge that has to be there. Otherwise we don't know what we're supposed to do. And there's different ways in which we come to realize what God is calling us to do, whether through natural and revealed law. All of that is given to us, but we, we have to know it. And primarily, we, know, we have to know him. Again, we can think of the whole history of Israel. Israel is, is the people that knows God, to whom God has revealed himself. And that is at the foundation of those commandments. So that first knowledge of him, we can have a parallel with the first ever commandment that was given to anyone which was in the garden, the commandment not to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And that again was, was given within this relationship of knowledge and love, which was the primary relationship of creator to creature, God and, and, and man, God speaking those words having created man, having already a primary relationship with him. And so when that commandment was not obeyed, there was then a betrayal, there was a break, a breach of trust. It wasn't just doing something wrong uh, indifferently to any relationship. It was a break in relationship because it was a commandment given within that relationship. So this separation... Now, to come back to those commandments, they have to be known and then they have to be kept. And this keeping is really where love comes in. Our love is to choose. When we choose to do good, we activate, as it were, our capacity for love. We direct ourselves, we grow in love, we choose. No, I'm going to choose to take the bins out. I'm going to choose to do the washing up. Even in those tiny little things, this is where I are keeping the commandments. Our love comes in. Love one another as I have loved you. We give ourselves to each other. We might not be able to uh, every day be, be asked to give our own lives and die for someone. But we ask every day to do certain things out of love. And we don't even think about it. But every time we do something... 
It's fundamentally because we've chosen to do that or not chosen to do that. And so that can really help us to see how am I keeping the commandments of love? What am I choosing to do with my love? How am I choosing to, to, to use this capacity that I have to give myself as Jesus gave himself? So that's the movement of grace. The keeping the commandments, therefore, as I said and repeated over and over again, is inseparable from that primary relationship. And it's impossible with, without that primary relationship, where is, whereby Christ has loved us, has given himself to us, so that we can receive the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit in us enables us to love, well, to know and to love. The Spirit of Truth, the Spirit of Love, enables us to live that life, to be able to obey those commandments, to transform us into new creatures. This is really the new life that is given to us as Christians. The reason why they are saints in the Catholic Church is not because Catholics are good in and of themselves, it's because God is achieving in those saints the purpose he has for each one of us. They have allowed him to so be in them that their whole life has been transformed into the pattern of his life. And again, remember this distinction. Each one remain, remains individually distinct, but they are all united to the Lord to such an extent through the bond of charity, through the Holy Spirit, that there is no division. There is no division. The movement of grace in us, that's what really is the secret. So there's no point telling anyone to do whatever they, you, you, you know, you should do this, you should do that. If at the same time, we don't put them in contact with the source of grace, which is Jesus Christ. The, the, the word of God who gives his love, his Holy Spirit to us, and so enables us to live according to his commandments, to keep his commandments. And so we see then, therefore, revealed to us the whole life of the church, which is this communion. The communion, the church is meant to be the communion of all humanity with God. It's that communion is extended to everyone, and we are there, members of the church. Our mission is to extend that communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to everyone. That's the mission of every baptized member. But the communion of the baptized is those who have entered, received that very life of God at baptism. So we now find ourselves like the apostles, having received the love of, the love of Jesus, who have loved us to the end, having received the spirit of truth. We are now able to keep the commandments. Now, this can sound a little abstract, of course, but remember that that discourse was pronounced at the moment when the Eucharist was instituted. And if we read the text again, we can see that there are Eucharistic undertones. I will not leave you often. I will come back to you. Well, he comes every day. He comes. In a short time, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. We see him in the Eucharist every day, in a very real way. Because I live and you live, we live from the Eucharist. On that day, you will understand that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. This is what happens 
the reason we call the Eucharist Holy Communion is because when we receive the Eucharist, He is in us and we are in Him and therefore we are in the Father as He is in the Father. This is the life of God that we receive. So there's nothing really abstract about what He's telling us. This is something we experience in all the sacraments and especially in the Eucharist.